This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. All right, so we'll do like guns and terrorism, Brexit and condoms. Yep, yep. All right. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. With me as usual is my colleague Sarah Cliff. Uh, Ezra Klein is, is once again not once with again us. Once again missing. Um, probably recording his other podcast. He's an irresponsible young fellow. And uh, I don't know. We'll give him a stern talking to when he shows up next. If he shows up. But yes. we have a great podcast planned with just the t- we're doing great as we you can are, tell. We are. I, I feel good about it. Um, no, and you know we we mostly talk about about domestic issues here, um, but you know you do do see a, an intersection of sort of a, a classic uh, dom- domestic policy issue around gun regulation and national security and, and foreign policy type stuff. Where we're talking in the in the wake of this this massacre that happened at um, nightclub in Orlando, uh, but I think we kind of want to talk. You know, not just about the the specifics of that case. Um, people do these things for somewhat idiosyncratic reasons. There's a, a lot of sort of personal uh, details around this one guy. Um, I know I had spoken to uh, members of the Obama administration about this kind of lone wolf gun based terrorist attack problem uh, before this Orlando shooting, before the San Bernardino shooting, uh, before even the, uh, the the shootings in, in Paris. Um, this was something that they worried about because essentially the United States of America is a country where whether you like it or, or don't like it, there is a lot of guns in the United States. And in most states, buying guns is not regulated that tightly. That's a deliberate political choice on the part of, of the United States of America to make it relatively relatively easy for a person to buy powerful weapons that you can you can shoot a lot of people with. And, and so one consequence of that is that there is no really good homeland security type measure that is going to reliably prevent a person who decides he would really like to buy a gun and then shoot a dozen or, or two dozen people somewhere from doing it. And we've known that for a long time. We, we saw it in Columbine. We saw it in the movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, that these things happen. It's it's part of life. It's, you know, in, in all countries, you have occasional massacres. But but in the United States, it's easier than, than in most places. And until recently, we hadn't seen one of these spree killing type things done by someone who chose to affiliate themselves with Islamic terrorism. But the possibility for that to happen was clearly there. And it was something that worried the administration national security team a great deal, not particularly because the consequences are so bad. I mean, obviously it's bad, right? But nobody thought after that Aurora movie theater shooting that like, the fundamental security of the United States was at risk, right? But they had this understanding that if you had a shooting of that kind by someone who said, oh, hey, I'm in al-Qaeda, or in this case, oh, hey, I'm in ISIS, Americans would perceive it as part of the threat of international terrorism. And they would have a kind of baseline expectation that the the national security apparatus of the United States, the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, the military, uh, the State Department would, you know, quote unquote, 
do something about it. And the problem that they're faced with is there's nothing that they can do or nothing that they want to do. It, it's not like they don't know that ISIS exists and they're they're working on it. But also to do one of these shootings does not require logistical support mm -hmm. from a foreign-based terrorist network. So there's nothing that the Defense Department is going to do in Iraq and Syria, whether it works or doesn't work, that is going to prevent a guy in Florida from purchasing a gun legally, walking into a nightclub and, and shooting people. But there's a risk. You know, Donald Trump gives a gives a speech after this. It's like, well, we got to bomb the shit out of ISIS. We so there's a, there's a risk that you do something bad and counterproductive in the wake of the sort of emotional valence of, of the attack. And it's a it's a problem they had had discussed with several journalists before any of these attacks happened. Now that you've seen them happen, I, I do think that you see politically they feel a little stuck and a little paralyzed. Yeah. And just to put a few numbers to this, because I think, Matt, you're hitting on something important that's kind of changing and shifting a little bit about how we think about terrorism, how we think about what it is, how we fight it. Um, 538 did a really interesting piece before before this and then updated with the attack in Orlando, where they kind of looked at all the terrorism deaths in the United States, they find that 85 percent of people killed by terrorists in the U.S. were killed using guns. So it really has shifted. And this is um, 2002 to 2014. Um, before that, since 1970, there are fewer than five of those type of shootings. And it really shows like a shift in what terrorism kind of looks like. You had, you know, this, I think the iconic moment that comes to a lot of people's heads is the September 11th attack where you have people from outside the United States coming in using, you know, a very large weapon, an airplane to commit terrorism in the United States. What you've seen since then is, is something quite different. It's something that doesn't, you know, require international coordination. It requires buying a gun, which is a pretty easy thing to do in the United States. And that's where those who want to commit terrorism have kind of shifted their efforts of the type of things that they're going to use. So you see this kind of different portrait of who it is, both what weapons are being used, also who is committing terrorism. There's been a lot of talk this week about terrorism from abroad. You have Donald Trump reviving his calls to ban Muslims from entering the country. When you actually look at the people who are committing terrorist attacks, um, one of the reporters on my team at Vox, the data and graphics team, Sarah Frostenson, she crunched the numbers and found that about 80 percent of terrorist attacks since 2000 have been committed by American citizens. So you really, when you actually start looking at what terror looks like in the United States. It's a lot of guns and it's a lot of guns being purchased by American citizens to commit the kind of attacks, the type that we're kind of seeing in Orlando. But, you know, I, I also would want to say that I think part of what you see with that statistical uh, fact that you mm -hmm. laid out is that I think a media sense and a psychological sense that one thing we've seen over the past five years is a tendency to define terrorism down. I remember around 10 years ago, I think, I was talking to um, Richard Clark. You know, I asked him, like, what is the deal with terrorists and bombs? Like, it requires technical skills. Like, why don't they just shoot people, like normal people who want to kill people? And his view was that, well, they don't, do what normal people who want to hurt people do and go buy a gun precisely because that's what normal people do. And like terrorism is a 
a psychological tactic, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like the idea of Al Qaeda of any terrorist group was never like they're actually going to go kill every single American, right? There's way too many of us. But it's terrorism. It's in there. It's a, it's an adjective. It's meant to have a, a psychological impact. His idea was that you know the United States has a, a much higher gun ownership rate than other developed countries. It also has a much higher murder rate than other developed countries. And you can like that. You can not like that. But we accept it as a sort of baseline element of life that, you know, if you had a six-month span in which um, Spanish people were being shot at the rate of American people, they would freak out in Spain. But we don't freak out because it's normal. And so his thinking and or his explanation of terrorist thinking was, well, you can't just do something as banal as like shoot five guys. Like that won't cause Americans to freak out. Mm-hmm. Terrorism has to terrorize. So you need like bombs. You need to hijack an airplane. You need to do something spectacular. And I feel like we are letting ourselves get terrorized on the cheap a little bit with some of these attacks, you know, in a way that is not helpful. That, you know, if we if you're going to say – Every time – I mean it's it's delicate because you don't want to say like, well, it's OK. It's just some people got shot. Um, but it is also true. Like people get shot every day in the United States and the president does not go give a press conference about it. We don't have dueling speeches from the presidential candidates and like huge front page splashes like, what are we going to do, right? Like, right. Like there have literally – like we've done the numbers on it. There have been about a thousand mass shootings since Sandy Hook. This is the FBI definition for more people involved. Some people quibble with the definition. But you're right. Right. There is a lot of shooting that happens in the United States. But I want to ask, it sounds like an interesting conversation you had a decade ago. I'm curious, how do you think about what has changed since then? Since we see like in this time period, like the numbers are showing that terrorists are increasingly gravitating towards guns, that that has like become the terrorism weapon of choice in the United States. Like what is what's shifting there? Well, I mean, I guess to an extent, like they've gotten smarter. It turns out we're easier to scare than they may have thought. Um, I mean, there's also like been a shift in balance between the Al-Qaeda group and the and the ISIS group. And the ISIS group has specifically said people should try to take advantage of America's lax gun laws, you know, and shoot people up at wherever, nightclubs, I guess. You know, it's a difficult thing because, of course, you know, you should try to save lives where you can. And I'm I'm not a passionate gun control person. I guess this is the whole problem with gun control as an issue. A lot of the people who favor it are a little wishy-washy, and I am I am of that mindset. But, you know, it, it strikes me that there are two reasonable attitudes you can have and that we have settled as a country on a third unreasonable option. And, like, one reasonable view is why the right to widespread easy gun ownership is an important fundamental liberty It has costs, and one of those costs is that more people will be shot and killed than in other countries, but, like, that's okay, right? Just like if we banned cars, there wouldn't be car accidents, but also you wouldn't be able to drive. If we adopted English-style gun regulation, we wouldn't have all these people being shot, but also people wouldn't be able to have guns. So you could say that, and then you have to accept that, like, some of the people who shoot people are going to say they are in ISIS, But you can't specially freak out about those people, right? Then the other thing you could say is, no, we need to go like the full UK, right? We need to confiscate everybody's guns. We can say, okay, you can have slow loading, long hunting rifles, maybe with a permit, you know, in the right areas. No handguns, no semi-automatic weapons, you know, round them up or buybacks like Australia, you know, really, really, really crack down on this. And then, of course, anytime there's like gun crime. 
you freak out, right? Like in the UK, it's a big deal anytime you need to send these special police officers who carry guns into a situation because regular police officers don't carry guns because the expectation is that they won't face criminals who have guns, right? So don't freak out about gun crime. Makes sense. Do freak out about gun crime. Makes sense. But we're in this middle ground where I feel like we're like blasé about gun crime, but then we want to freak out if the gun crime is quote-unquote terrorism. And that doing the terrorists work for them, it, it seems to me, in a in a really unproductive way. I mean, part of it's scale, right? Like, I don't think it's just the freaking out with the terrorism. I mean, I would add the shooting in Orlando was the largest mass shooting in history. So we have this big shooting, yeah. a guy saying terrorism. So I think part of it is just the sheer scale of it. Like, there were... 42 other shootings that happened on Sunday. I, I don't think we've heard anything about, you know, anyone saying anything about ISIS, but it seems entirely possible that some of it has to do with the size and scale of it, I think. What's interesting is, you know, the conversation that happens afterwards. And I think you touched on this a little bit and something one of our coworkers at Vox, Zach Beecham, has written on is that we kind of end up in these like two separate conversations. So we have one conversation mostly happening on the left about gun control, where, you know, talk about we need fewer guns, we need better background checks. Um, you have Hillary Clinton talking about gun control. And then you have this separate terrorism conversation happening, mostly on the right, about what we can do to kind of fight ISIS. And I'm curious, I think you've done more reporting and thinking on this, Matt. Do those converge? Are we kind of like stuck in this weird spot where, you know, even though most terrorism attacks are committed with guns, these conversations like remain very separate conversations about what you do in the wake of something like what happened in Orlando? If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's, it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. So you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. naturebox.com slash weeds. What strikes me is that you have Democrats now out proposing um, gun control ideas, not like super gun control ideas that would drastically reduce the level of gun violence, like tiny, narrowly construed gun control ideas that like this idea that there should be an equivalent to the no fly list for not buying guns for terrorism suspects that, you know, if you if you impose that 
what would happen in practice is you would have years of litigation about due process uh, mm-hmm. because there's no constitutional right to board an airplane. Um, there's some general principles about due process, mm-hmm. but it's like written into the Bill of Rights that you can buy mm-hmm. a gun. So to say that without a real legal trial, you, you know, so there'd be a lot of litigation. You could do it. This is a bill. Senate but Democrats it's like have. small ball, right? Like you can like, right. someone can buy someone else a gun. Like these are like not the things when you talk to gun policy experts that like, yes, yeah. these are and like there's, fix the and there's a lot of guns in America, right? Okay. I mean, we're, and we're not talking about trying to like get all the guns off the street. Um, but if you were to make the case for these measures, like what I would say is that there's like a requirement that there be a policy response to something as hideous as 50 people being massacred by someone who's pledged allegiance to ISIS. And ideas like barring all Muslims from traveling to the United States will actually be massively counterproductive. They will like really hurt the country in in a really serious way. Whereas creating some kind of no gun registry thingamajiggy um, will like probably not fix anything, but it won't do much harm. And it will let us have a little mental energy release because you can't, I guess, I mean, as a political matter, you can't just like stand up and say like, you know what? This was really shitty and we're not going to do anything about it. Um, so, you, so you have to claim to do something. And to me, the, the one that's really along those lines is these proposals to ban large capacity magazines. This, I think, really like sounds good. If you want a talking point to deliver to an audience of people who don't own guns, are not familiar with firearms, but like it sounds good. The, this thing you hear people say, it's like, well, you don't need like 10 rounds in your in your, in your your magazine to shoot a deer and like everyone claps and that, that's totally true. Um, you know, I, I read up on this. That sounds true to me too. I'm not like super familiar with semi-automatic firearms, but it turns out it's like actually really easy to swap swap magazines uh, in these guns and that in, in Canada where they have a regulation along these lines, the uh, Mounties say that it, it doesn't work very well. It's really easy to modify the, the magazines to, to get more bullets in them, uh, th- things like that. Um, but again, if you want something that like pulls well, that won't hurt anybody and that constitutes doing something, like this seems like a pretty good idea, right? Like no one's legitimate interests are going to be trampled on if you can only have five bullets in your magazine. At the same time, you're just not at 10, I guess, is the, the what they're proposing. But you're not really going to like lick this issue unless you make a really stringent anti-gun move of the kind that would be expensive and, and unpopular. But also, I mean, like, I want to hit on that point again, because I feel like there's been a lot of, in the wake of the Orlando shooting, a lot of things I see circulating on Facebook, mostly from liberal people saying, like, look at this massive gun. Like, why would anyone own it? And kind of like speaking, you know, to the, like the political salience of, you know, saying, well, why don't we just ban these semi-automatic assault rifles? Who could possibly need them? But it takes us away from the lot of guns that are committing a lot of the homicides that happen every day in the United yes. States. I think there's been, I you know, I think there is um, a Slate article that circulated super widely about how the AR-15 kind of became the mass shootings, mm-hmm. the mass shooters kind of gun of choice. But the gun of choice generally for killing people is just a handgun. And handguns are, they don't look as scary, but they're very deadly. It's very easy to shoot a lot of people with a handgun, they look a lot less scary. They're not as big. They don't look like something, you know, you kind of think of a military person owning. Um, I think you're right that the focus kind of moves to these weapons. And and there is a reason for it. Like they do show up a lot in mass shootings, but it, it moves away from 
the guns that more people own and the guns that are responsible for more of the homicides that are happening in the United States more frequently than mass shootings. And I think because you're right, because it's easier politically to talk about these guns that like look very scary and fewer people own than to talk about, you know, this whole other class of guns that are much more frequent in the United States, but much less scary looking. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the the basic issue is that a, a long gun like, like an AR-15 is not a practical tool for a criminal who typically, I mean, these these kind of like spree killers are unusual in that they're not trying to get away with anything. Um, so you can have a giant gun where it makes right. it obvious that you're the criminal with the crazy gun. Um, but they're also, they're, those guns are expensive. They're, they're hard to conceal and they are not that widely used in broadly speaking crime in, in the United States. Um, whereas you know, smaller handguns are. Um, they are very deadly. Um, there's a reason that that's the weapon of choice, both for criminals and for law enforcement officers, because it's the, the practical weapon for someone who needs to walk around town, live their life, and sometimes shoot someone. Or shoot like 20. If you need to shoot like 20 bullets in a row, that's a thing you can do <laughs> right, you with can... a handgun and a semi-automatic. Yes. Um, and, you know, it's a difficult problem. I mean, they're not optimized for military-type situations. As Hillary Clinton had this line in his speech. She said, like, weapons of war have no place on our streets. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a that's a good line. Um, but, I mean, again, if you're talking about the bulk of shooting, it's like small, portable weapons that they're not, quote unquote, weapons of war. Because in a war, you don't care about concealability. <laughs> you're wearing uniforms. You're trying to stand far away from the other guy, you know, things like that. Um, but, you know, you don't commit crimes with weapons of war. You commit crimes with weapons of crime. Uh, and that's like the real nexus. And, and it is something that has fallen out of the the like mainstream political conversation in, in the United States. Although, you know, if you talk to mayors, right, I mean, mayors of big liberal cities, uh, whether that's New York, Chicago, a whole series of them, you know, they're very concerned about small handguns. I mean, the reason you have so many people being shot and killed in a, in a city like Chicago that has a, a, you know, really sort of out of control murder rate is that, you know, you have gangs who are involved in criminal activities and in control of neighborhoods and they get into disputes with one another. And if they were operating in northern England, they would settle these disputes, you know, with bricks or fists or sticks. And people would be hurt, but not as many people would be killed. And because the violence is less deadly, the retaliation is also less deadly. But in in Chicago, where um, gun control is very, very strict, but they are immediately adjacent to much Mm -hmm. laxer gun laws in in, in rural Illinois and in Indiana, just like everybody has guns. So they settle their arguments by shooting each other. And it leads to a a horrific death toll. And the guns are not like fancy. um, And and there's nothing special about them. They're just like regular guns. And it's not like Chicago. Well, it's not like Chicago has for the international world, like an extraordinarily high amount of crime, or that the United States at large has right. a lot of crime. It's crime becomes much more deadly when you have guns involved versus like sticks, bricks, or whatever. Right. Else, C- whatever compared to, to Europe, we have a similar amount of robberies. We have a similar mm-hmm. amount of burglaries. We have a similar amount of auto thefts. And we have a similar amount of assaults. Um, but our assaults are much more likely to end up with the victim being dead rather than the victim having his arm broken. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's about like banal, ordinary, everyday guns. And it also does leave us vulnerable to, 
you know, quote unquote terrorists uh, who want to take advantage of this same dynamic. I mean, in principle, you could pledge allegiance to ISIS, grab a baseball bat mm-hmm. and start, you know, hitting kids at the schoolyard. That would be bad. I mean, people, people would be really upset. Um, it's just in practice, there's only so many people you're going to be able to hurt that way. Mm-hmm. Can I say one thing? This is straying a little bit from our topic of terrorism, but kind of related to the Orlando shooting I've been thinking about is I remember as a journalist covering the Newtown shooting and there felt like the sense of like, OK, something is probably going to happen next. It didn't. But it, it seemed like in the wake of that shooting that it just kind of felt like, wow, this was horrific. Something is going to happen in Congress. I have not kind of felt the same sort of thing in the wake of the Orlando shooting. And I can't, I've been trying to wrap my head around like, you know, obviously this is like an anecdote of one, but it does feel like something different. Like the impetus to change things is not quite as strong in this case as it felt after other shootings I've covered. And I can't tell if people look at that shooting and say, well, that's not the type of place I would be. I'm not gay and kind of like set it aside. You know, they don't identify with it in the way, you know, they might look at schools and think, oh, you know, my kid could have gone there. Is that I don't know if this is like something I've been thinking about on my on my own or like how you've thought about it as someone else who's also covered multiple mass shootings. But how do you think about like how the reaction to this feels like? you know, policy-wise versus other shootings. Well, I think it's that precisely because of the terrorism angle, Republicans don't feel cross-pressured at all, right? When you have a kind of everyday American perpetrating a totally Mm non-ideological massacre, conservatives are the people who are opposing gun regulations. But conservatives are also like the movement of law and order. So... When something like Newtown happens, there's some sense that in Republican circles, they ought to say you should do something Mm -hmm. about it, right? People are being killed. So what are you going to do? And they have sort of two options that they can offer there. One goes to like mental health type issues Mm -hmm. and one goes to gun regulation type issues. And both of those ideas violate some other structures of of conservatism, right? I mean, spending more money on social services isn't that conservative and stricter gun regulation isn't that conservative. But also saying, well, we're going to do nothing about a a serious criminal violence isn't very conservative. So you get the sense that like something might happen. And indeed, I mean, even though no legislation passed after after Newtown, Pat Toomey, who is a, a pretty conservative legislator who represents the not super conservative state of Pennsylvania, came on board with a gun control bill. And that's like the kind of thing that you would expect. I mean, it, it, so like that didn't pass, but like it could have, right? right? Like some Republicans wanted to do something if their thinking had been a little different. But when you have an ISIS link, I think conservatives are wrong about Obama's foreign policy, but obviously conservatives think that they're right. And like they feel that Barack Obama is handling U.S. policy toward the Middle East really, really misguided way. So like they have this ready answer that like, Okay, these ISIS terrorist attacks show that Obama's weakness abroad is like inviting these threats. So they have no no reason to revise their kind of thinking about gun control. And then by the same token, right, for Democrats, if if ISIS affiliates were exploding bombs in gay nightclubs, liberals might start saying, "Uh uh-oh, maybe Obama's screwing things up. Um, But as long as they're using guns, because liberals have this like longstanding 
gun control narrative. Like, we're just going to keep saying, well, you know, we made it really easy to buy assault rifles. So, of course, this is going to happen. Yeah. So you have a script that you can return to on each side that, like, didn't quite fully exist on the conservative side in, like, the wake of something like Newtown, for example. Exactly. Exactly. There's no obvious conservative answer to Newtown, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, it it was a—they wound up most Republicans just saying, like, we should do nothing. There should be no policy response at all. Um, But that's not a great look for them. And if you had had repetition of the Newtown facts multiple times, I think they would – you know, start to buckle under under the pressure. But when it turns to to attacks with the, an Islamist right. angle, like they have something to say. Do you think there's a buckling at some point or because like, I feel like we've been through a lot of mass shootings. Like we haven't seen the buckle and we saw 20, you know, six year olds get murdered in a school and like we didn't see the buckling at some point. Well, like, but what, again, I'm saying like there there was this Toomey Mansion yeah. bill. There were Republicans who who voted for it. I mm-hmm. think that if in San Bernardino and then again in Orlando, you had had like white people mm-hmm. with no relationship to Islam doing these things that there would have been a buckle. But, you know, it, it was like a, a different set of different set of facts. I mean, wh- the, the high tide of gun control politics mm-hmm. in the United States was in the, uh, the early, early 90s. And it's not a coincidence, right? The crime rate was really, really high back then. And that's when liberals started to buckle and embrace death penalty and like strong punitive measures. And also conservatives started to buckle and embrace, you know, tighter gun regulations uh, because you have to do something when people are upset. Uh, but when the thing people are upset about is Islamist terrorism, mm-hmm. conservatives have this, this totally different answer. Mm-hmm. All right. Should we move on to our yeah, absolutely. next topic? Absolutely. Should we ready to talk some Brexit? Brexit, yes. Well, you've you've been to Britain recently, right? I have. Did you did you feel that it was part of Europe, symbolically, culturally, <sighs> metaphorically? Yeah, oh gosh. I mean, it seemed pretty European to me, but maybe it won't be after the end of next week. <laughs> well, maybe actually we should say what we're talking yes. about. Yes. Okay. What, so what, what what is Brexit? So Brexit is a, a terrible name that we have um, a portmanteauing of British exit, the vote that Britain is going to take next week about whether they would like to stay part of the European Union or not. And it um, has been, from what I understand, gaining support in the polls as we get closer. It seems Britain has been part of kind of the economic cooperation in various forms since the early 1970s or so. And the vote seemed, I think, when it was proposed, like a bit of a long shot. And there's been a tightening in the polls. Um, The Leave movement has been gaining traction so it seems like a vote that feels in Britain like a very real possibility that could really change what it's like, particularly to work in finance to, in Britain, but just generally what it's what it's like to be in Britain and if Britain remains part of the EU. Yeah. And so to, to give a little of the political context to this, um, European Union membership has always been a little bit contentious in British politics. Um, and the Conservative Party in particular has been divided about Britain's relationship to Europe for a long time. And they had started to face a serious electoral threat from the UK Independence Party, uh, which was running. And it served as a kind of a, a spoiler party, right? So like Labour's um, 
really biggest, most plausible hope of winning seats in the in the next general, most recent general election was that conservative anti-European people would defect to UKIP sort of split votes and, and they could get in. And David Cameron, who favors European Union membership, came up with what I guess seemed to him like a very clever idea, which was that he has said that he personally was against leaving the EU, but he promised that if he won the election, he would organize a binding referendum on whether or not Britain should leave the EU. So therefore, if you wanted to leave the EU, rather than voting for the party that was promising to take Britain out of the EU, you should vote for David Cameron, who didn't want to leave the EU, because Cameron would give you the referendum, whereas voting for UKIP would split the vote and put Labour in. And so they, it was a really is confusing message that when I first heard it, I thought there's no way this is going to work. You can't like sloganize it. Um, but they did a good job of like organizing themselves and, and saying, you know, this is the only way to get the EU referendum to the sort of um, Euroskeptic, older white working class uh, base, while then at the same time saying to finance people who really want to be in the EU, like, no, we're with you, man. Like, this is great. We're going to win the election. We're going to cut your taxes. We're going to hold the referendum. We're going to win the referendum because the left wing voters are going to be with us. And, you know, it's going to be it's going to be a party. Um, the fly in the ointment turns out to be that it now looks like he's going to lose the referendum. The, Boris Johnson, who used to be mayor of London and who I, I believe had not really demonstrated a history of wanting to leave the EU previously, um, would like to be the leader of the conservative party. And he realized that he is not uh, David Cameron's chosen successor. So he hopped on the leave bandwagon, um, as did a couple other sort of prominent uh, Tory politicians who are on the outs. And they helped give it a a more respectable sheen um, than, than it used to have. And then also some uh, labor voters have gotten a little a little wishy-washy. And so suddenly it looks like Britain, Britain might leave. And it, that's what the polls show recently. Mm -hmm. And it's weird because this referendum has been scheduled for a long time and everyone had been sure that they were going to stay. So now suddenly there's like a global freak out. There's a global freak out about, although I am, I think because like looking at the history of these type of votes, I am less freaked out. Now, like to be fair, I don't live in Britain and like I'm not a British historian, so it is completely possible by the time we tape next week's weeds this will be all terribly wrong. But w when I kind of think of like separate situations have been somewhat similar to this where you feel like there's a divide, there's unrest, there's a vote on should we stay or should we leave. It often feels like in the lead up, like there's a lot of talk about leaving and like leaving is the more kind of exciting, crazy, insane option. So it, I think you see a little bit of pickup around it. There was, for example, the um, referendum on Scotland, where again, there was like, is Scotland going to leave? And that almost felt, you know, like the stakes were arguably a little bit lower than into all of Britain leaving the EU. And in that case, you saw Scotland decided to stay with, um, with Britain. 
And, you know, then I think back all the way to when I was a young child in Canada and you had Quebec voting on whether Quebec wanted to basically leave Canada. And there were all sorts of um, cultural issues at play. You know, you had um, Parti Québécois that was, um, you know, pushing the separatist movement. And and it was a very close vote at the end of the day. Quebec obviously stayed in Canada. Um, But I, I think in the lead up to a lot of these, there's like a lot of energy and a lot of talk about the support for leaving, but you see almost like some version of cold feet with the actual vote when voters think through, it seems at least when I think of like these previous examples, it seemed relatively similar, some cold feet about like actually doing the deal and like going through with it. But I don't know. How are you thinking about Yeah, I mean, that is definitely the pattern that you see is that People in a in a variety of countries, I, I would add Ca- Catalonia and in Spain. People like to vote for the separatist party and put them in office. Then once they are in office, they hold their referendum. And for a while, because it it's like a bummer, right? Like if you're if you're a French Canadian or you're Scottish or you're Catalan, you're probably proud to be a Quebecois, you know, and so. The idea of voting for the Parti Québécois is is very appealing. And the idea of saying Quebec should be an independent nation that's great, like, that sounds way better, right? The other option, you know, so in in Quebec, for example, you have a a substantial English-speaking minority. So they just say, like, no, we shouldn't leave. Like, I don't want to. And then you have a certain number of fancy uh, French-Canadian international businessmen who are like, no, like, let's not leave. Like, I got my my nice company. Uh, But the referendum ends up failing because the sort of the median Quebecois is a proud Quebecois, is a sentimental nationalist, wants to want Quebec to be independent, but worries that just in a practical daily grind sense. There's like a lot of downside risks of splitting up a country and no obvious upside that they're not like oppressed in a jackboots kind of way. Like it's Canada, it's Scotland. Right. And then you thought through like the idea of like Quebec start, like, are they going to start a currency? Are they going to start like a, like an armed service? Like there are a lot of practical things that I think come up as you get closer. This is where I do think leaving the EU is different. That For many British people, they work in industries alongside, like, EU colleagues and they do global business. You know, people in London. And and Brexit polls very poorly Mm -hmm. there. But in the places where it is polling well, among older people Mm -hmm. and sort of random English towns, the EU does not provide frontline public services the way a real country would. No one is getting social security checks from the EU. No one is looking to the EU police to help them with a problem. In Britain, they don't use the euro. So the the EU's influence on life is like invisible in, in those kind of places. And so I think people may not fully appreciate the 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 risks involved. So can you actually actually one thing I want you to talk through 
tell us what, so you leave the EU, like, what are you leaving? Like, what is the separation that actually happens? Right. So the, the EU has a bunch of different moving parts to it. But the, the sort of the most important thing from, from the British perspective is that the EU operates what is called the, the single market which is like a free trade area like on steroids. And it says that for the vast majority of goods and services, you can sell across borders seamlessly, Um, which doesn't just mean like no tariffs and no formal trade barriers. It means that there's a common regulatory framework, you know, Mm -hmm. so like a car that's legal to sell in Portugal, you can't sell in the United States, Mm -hmm. but you can sell it in Germany. You can sell in Ireland. You you can sell in Or like drugs would be another one. You probably have to go through one. Pharmaceutical, right. Regulatory. Any sort of like is this safe to buy mm-hmm. kind of thing or are you allowed to sell this is common across all places. And also you are allowed to move from country to country and work. Um, the, the moving is controversial because there's a lot of economic disparities uh, in the EU. A lot of these Eastern European countries are, are quite a bit poorer. So there's been an influx of, of Eastern European immigrants into the UK. And one of the main reasons people want to leave is to kind of kick those people out. But it also works for for highly skilled people. So, you know, New York is a big global center of financial services. And it's also the biggest city in a really, really big country. London is the biggest city in a kind of medium-sized country, but it has a comparably big financial mm-hmm. services sector. And that's because they are providing financial services throughout the European continent. Mm-hmm. And this is where most of the Brexit freakout is, would right. be like in London financial circles. Yeah, although it's not entirely clear. Uh, well, yeah. that's right. But the, the question under Brexit is, mm-hmm. is out of the EU Britain going to retain the ability to sell financial mm-hmm. services into the rest of Europe in a seamless way. Now, the Brexit people say, yeah, sure, no problem. Um, there's this thing called the European Economic Area, mm-hmm. which is basically the EU plus Switzerland and Norway, in which Switzerland and Norway without having joined the EU. And and it's like, there's a lot of different aspects of the EU. Like there's a flag, there's a government office building in Brussels. um, But they're like, have access to the single market without being in the other parts. And so the Brexiters say like, yeah, you know, that's what we're going to do. We're going to just like ditch this like, free movement stuff, Mm -hmm. some of the weird regulatory stuff, but we're just going to negotiate entrance into the EEA uh, just like Norway and Switzerland did. So that's what they say, right? But the one reason that Norway, you know, was was allowed in is that Norway does not compete with like major industries that are located elsewhere. Norway, um, they have a big oil and gas industry and everyone wants the ability to buy Norwegian mm-hmm. oil and gas. Uh, they have some fishermen, which, you know, is fine. It's, it's no big deal. Um, and Norway also just has a lot of money. They're really rich because of the oil and gas. So what the EU said to Norway was like, yeah, fine, you can get in the single market, but you just got to like pay us some money. Mm-hmm. And Norway has a lot of money. So they said, yeah. So no problem. <laughs> with Britain, it's a it's a tougher question, right? If you are the prime minister of uh, the Netherlands, you know, you're going to say to yourself, well, look, we have in Amsterdam, like the number two financial center in Europe, but it's tiny compared to London. Since these morons (laughs) voted themselves out, 
I can just not let them back in and I can poach all their business and I can say, hey, English bankers, come come move to Amsterdam, like locate, relocate your bank facilities or just lose all your customers or like whatever you want to do. But like we're definitely not letting you back in here. Um, and Deutsche Bank might do the same thing. You would have external pressure from, from Switzerland. So it's not like leaving the EU would necessarily be a catastrophe to the London financial hub, but like it certainly might be. I could argue the case both ways. If they right. invited me to Brussels and they were like, Matt, what should we do about this? Like there's reasons to be generous, but there's also reasons to be punitive. And there's So a, what's your case to be generous? You just laid out the case to be punitive. So the the case to be generous is like I think similar to the general case for for free trade is to just say that like, look, all these different countries have their specialties. Um, it's better for us to be able to sell things seamlessly to English customers, and it's good for us to be able to buy services from England. It would be really inefficient to try to like destroy the financial hub in London, then rebuild it someplace else. You know who cares? But what we know from every trade agreement of all time ever is that. People are rarely so like eager to just say like, well, this is a win-win, like let's let's get along. Particularly because, you know, uh, Britain would be spurning them. Right. right? Like if you're it's, thinking of the politics, this is a country that was like, we're out, goodbye, please let us into this one part like we would like to be in now. But not just that, but so, so right, so you have the Dutch who are going to have just like a cynical financial interest in keeping them out. You have the Poles, the Balts, the Romanians who literally – the reason is that they do not like Eastern European people living in their country and they wanted the right to kick them out of their country. So they're going to kick them all out and then be like, hey, guys, would you like our bank? And it's like, well, maybe not. Right. Maybe like, no, fuck you. Right. It's a tricky kind of situation. You're really counting on Angela Merkel, Francois Hollande, uh, Matteo Renzi, the, the leaders of the bigger European countries. You're hoping that they are going to like take a broad view of this and look at the big picture. But if you break up a deep political union in a kind of fit of peak anger and nationalism, the chance that other people will respond with peak anger and nationalism seems like pretty high. And it's a, it's a big risk. And then last but by no means least, I think there's a perception in the UK that it's like, well, OK, so the EU is good for London, but like we're all mm -hmm. suffering here in the regions. And there's something to that. But then the Flip side of that is that, you know, like in most countries, what's happening is that the rich part of Britain that has the globally competitive industries in it is paying the taxes that are supporting the public services to everybody else. It's unlikely that London is going to suddenly become like a poor city that nobody wants to live in. It will still have banks. It will still have a world-renowned theater scene. It will still be a global tourist attraction. It'll have one of the biggest airports in the world, right? Like uh, London businesses will be hurt, but it's like the city of London is going to be there. But if the city of London cannot finance like can't like pay the freight for Birmingham and Manchester, that's going to be a problem for the people who think they're going to win in this, right? It doesn't magically recreate the British manufacturing economy of the 1920s to tear down the modern British financial economy. All right. Well, I guess we'll see. Yes. <laughs> Maybe next week we can talk about this again. Yeah, we'll see what happens if yeah. uh, if the United Kingdom uh, falls if apart. If Ezra comes back, if Britain leaves, who knows what could happen next week. Exactly. 
All right. You want to tell us about a, about a, a, a shocking... Boy, do I ever. A disturbing, frankly, research paper. It is. So this is another NBER paper, um, and it is from two Notre Dame economists. And it, it was something that jumped out at me immediately when I saw it. Basically, what they did is they went back and looked at um, school condom programs in the 1990s. You had... In the late 80s, early 90s, schools worried about the AIDS epidemic, making condoms more accessible. Um, some of them, most of the schools did this like through a school nurse or a counselor. That's how a, we did it. That's a, so and then like a small handful of the ultra liberal schools just like put out vending machines or baskets of condoms that I did not have that at my high school. Um, but anyways, so they went and looked at what happened to teen births in the places with these condom giveaway programs. And very surprisingly, they found that um, access to condoms in schools, I'm reading from their paper, teen births went up about 10% in the schools with the condom giveaway programs. Um, I, I think as a side effect of preventing STDs, the hope was these condom giveaway programs would actually prevent teen births. So it's a very surprising finding that could possibly speak to one of the concerns that social conservatives often raised about these programs, that if you make these condoms more available, it's possible that kids will feel more okay um, engaging in riskier sexual behavior. So is this because the students had more sex or is it because the condoms crowded out so, effective birth control. So methods. we don't know. That, okay. that, so this is something in the discussion part of the paper. They are not able to um, to figure that out. One of the kind of data challenges here is that we have really good county data on um, on teen births. We don't have like great county data on like percent of kids having sex or like what type of um, what type of contraceptives kids are using. So it's hard to like match the school district to those sorts of things. So in case we have any teens listening at home, yes. hormonal contraceptives do not prevent transmission of sexually transmitted diseases. Yes. But condoms are a very ineffective method of birth control. Yeah. So if you, just to put some numbers to it, if you are a woman using condoms for having sex, using condoms for about a year as the way people normally use condoms, meaning like sometimes you don't get it on exactly right. 18% of women who rely on condoms for birth control will become pregnant within a year. Um, you compare that to like birth control pills where the failure rate is 9%. So nine out of a hundred women who rely on birth control pills become pregnant within a year. And then you get to like long acting reversible contraceptives like IUDs, implants, the failure rate is less than 1%. So one possibility this raises is crowd out that, like Matt said, you knew if you had condoms available at school, you felt less of a need to go to your doctor and get a birth control prescription. One thing that I think is is important to understand about this is they looked at um, kind of how schools structured their condom programs. And one big difference they find is that most of the, or possibly all of the uptick in teen births is among schools that didn't have mandated counseling with um, giving out condoms. So you had some schools, actually a majority of schools, where if you were going to the school nurse to get a condom, you would the nurse would have to give you a talk about how abstinence is the only completely effective way to prevent pregnancy, and here's how you use the condom, and here are the risks of having sex. They found that about a third of schools with condom programs didn't have that type of counseling. And really you see the increase in teen birth concentrated in those particular schools. Yeah, I mean, I would say my, my high school was in this uh, this bad zone. There was Ugh. like a, a there was, the school nurse had a, like an office with a door, but there was like a box 
out near the door, but outside yeah. it yeah, where, you, no good. where you could just grab the condoms. And I mean, I, I was making this point about efficacy because mm-hmm. I, I know this now, but I recall, mm-hmm. I, obviously I, I was not a, a girl at that time mm-hmm. um, or currently. And I don't know if the messaging to women was clearer, but certainly my recollection is that a very simplistic message about safe sex was being offered, combined with to the extent that any nuance was interjected, the fear seemed to be that people would be using oral contraceptive pills mm-hmm. and would be confused into thinking that that would protect them against HIV. Mm-hmm. And so they were like emphasizing that like only condoms were going to be an effective anti-STD measure. And it was only, you know, considerably later in life that I read mm-hmm. any of this stuff about how, you know, in practice, people relying on condoms as their sole means of, of mm-hmm. contraception, um, it that's it's better than nothing. Um, right. But it's it's really not good. And it's not just that, like, it's not great you know, in the abstract, it's really bad compared to widely available alternatives that, you know, you can you can discuss with a, with a doctor and or a school nurse could tell you about. Um, you know, I mean, a good example of how an idea that sounds like a good idea, if you don't fully think it through, right. particularly when you're talking about trying to change what 16-year-olds do, mm-hmm. like you've got to really think about what you're saying. Yes. Yeah, so, and there was one other theory I thought was interesting. So basically the economists who wrote this paper, they have like three theories, none of which there's a ton of data on, but, you know, basically saying, look, we found this finding. Here's three ways we think about this happening. One is kids having more sex, um, which we've talked about. One is crowd out of other birth control. The third is that, and again, like there's not a ton of data on this point, but I thought it was an interesting theory, is that these condom programs essentially crowded out other pregnancy prevention programs where Mm -hmm. the school said, okay, we did this, like, we're not going to invest in like, you know, whatever other, you know, type of like, you know, maybe more sex ed, like other sorts of things you could do to prevent pregnancy that they kind of felt like a sense of mission accomplished and kind of like moved on to focusing on other things, which like Matt was saying, like a lot of times, like when you're 16, you don't have a great sense of like how exactly to prevent pregnancy. And without that additional instruction, you can see how this happens. Um, so I found it a really interesting paper to think about. You know, And they say, you know, obviously this is one snapshot of time. Like they're just looking at this 1990s period. But I feel like it's still pretty instructive if you're someone at a school thinking about like, how do I get to the best health outcomes that it really suggests some of these well-intentioned programs um, could have consequences that were not intentioned at all. And that thinking through the design of them a little more clearly, and I want to say like, it doesn't, it suggests there is a responsible way to do this. Like the counseling really seems like in this data set, the schools with condom giveaways and counseling basically look the same as schools with no giveaway. So there is a way to do this responsibly. I don't think like I wouldn't read this paper as saying like condom giveaways in schools are like bad writ large, but without any additional information, it seems like there is something problematic going on there. Yeah. And I mean, we we had a, a separate episode where we, we talked about uh, teen pregnancy more broadly, and it, it's worth being clear. The teen pregnancy rate has fallen yes. dramatically. And the main reason that seems to be is that uh, more people are using more effective contraceptive mm-hmm. methods, but still most women of childbearing age women, are, yeah. are not using the most effective yeah. methods out there. And so uh, on the one hand, the finding of 
of this paper is is a little counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. I would say the broader picture like is more intuitive. It's like mm-hmm. when you push people to use the medically effective methods, you gain success. Um, when you throw condoms around without any information, right. um, you don't. <laughs> Yeah, right now you do see, so the newest, um, there's this every other year survey, the youth risk behavioral surveillance that looks at like if teens are, like what teens are up to. And one of the interesting things in the new data that just came out last week is um, you actually see condom use has been trending down over the past decade, Mm -hmm. which in some ways is worrisome with STDs because that is going to be the only contraceptive that's also preventing STDs. The encouraging side of it, as you see it happening, it seems to be like a switch to better contraceptives, like more IUDs, more implants, um, birth control pills are kind of a little bit flat. But you generally, it, it seems like you're seeing in the data like a switch to these better contraceptives. The trade-off is you're like losing this like thing that's not great at preventing pregnancy, but also the only thing you have for preventing STDs. Right. I mean, it's just... It's I, hard I, to message around, right? I guess just like as a policy, yeah. it's like you have to walk and chew gum yeah. at the same time, basically, right? It's like there's two different things mm-hmm. people are trying to accomplish, and you really need different tools to optimally achieve both of them, which I guess can be confusing for teens, uh, confusing for, for school administrators. Mm-hmm. I, the last thing I wanted to say on this is that it's great that these economists did this study, but in a wheezy spirit, it's a little bit of a shame that we had this, like, intervention fad, mm-hmm. and then, like, 15 years later, <laughs> some economists in Notre Dame are looking at it. It would have been pretty easy to like build into this idea in the first place. It doesn't mm-hmm. take people that long to get pregnant and have children. Yeah. <laughs> you could study this in much closer to real time and have done some course correction. Yeah, I mean, you did see some research. I was looking through it in, in like the mid-90s about, because I think the main objection that was raised to these was like, well, kids are going to be more pr- promiscuous right. and riskier behavior. So you saw a few studies on that point in particular, where basically there was one like in the Los Angeles school district, which had a condom giveaway program that surveyed kids and like, you know, how much they're having sex didn't find any change. So it kind of seemed like, oh, well, like things look like they're going fine. I, I think it was a narrow response to a more narrow objection to right. these to these programs. And a lot of this, this was all happening when teen births were going up. So like there were lots of teen births and like the teen birth rate in the early 90s was twice what it is right now. And it was it peaked in 1991 when there was a lot of this happening. So might have been like a bit of like losing the forest for the trees, kind of not seeing this change that was happening that like 10 percent sounds big. It can also like when you have a lot of teen births, like it can also feel a little bit small and like hard to get a sense of like, oh, that's like an outcome we should be measuring as well. Well, and at, at, at the time also, there were no uh, effective uh, HIV treatments. And so there was <laughs> two different policy objectives here. And the balance between them, you know, can also shift mm-hmm. according to what people sort of have in mind uh, at, at the time, right? Mm-hmm. So I think this was probably primarily intended as an STD yes. intervention. And so within the primary objection being about promiscuity. Mm -hmm. So people were looking at the objection that people were raising and they were looking at the policy they were trying to fix and like not giving perhaps adequate consideration Mm -hmm. to unintended consequences. But of course, conservatives would tell you that that's the problem. And there we are. All right. I I think that's an episode of The Weeds. 
Thanks for listening, guys. Um, we really appreciate it if you, uh, you know, recommend this podcast to your friends, rate it on iTunes, rate it, I don't know, wherever else people get podcasts. But I'm sure if you get your podcast somewhere that isn't iTunes, there is some way to rate and recommend it there. Tell everyone. Thanks to our producer, Afim Shapiro. Um, thanks to our sponsors. And uh, thanks to you all for listening. We'll see you next week. See you then. See you then.